Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of August 24th. Looking West. I'm your host, Dan Creter, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss recent moves in credit and swap spreads ahead of the Fed's annual meetings at Jackson Hole. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. Well, Dan, after an impressive 20 to 25 basis point rally in spreads in July and early August, we've gotten a bit of a backup in credit here more recently. To begin, why don't you just set the table with what we've seen in credit over the past two weeks since our last episode? Yes, spreads are out about six or seven basis points since the beginning of last week. Like you mentioned, we are coming off about a 20 basis point rally in credit spread indices. And I think the narrative in credit markets is now shifting to whether the lows in credit or the wides in credit spreads for the year are in, or if we just saw a month and a half long bear market rally. And we've been of the mind that credit spreads over the past month and a half or so we're really just in the process of, of defining the narrow part of the trading range that's likely to hold and that we haven't necessarily seen the wides and credit spreads just yet. Yeah, maybe pushed a bit tighter than we thought they would in the last month and a half. But I agree with you that we're at a point of uncertainty here from credit. You can make a pretty compelling argument either way that spreads will continue widening now after a bear market rally or that we could see just this being a little blip on the radar with heavy supply in August and that spreads will soon turn narrower again. So I think that's where we start the conversation for today. And I think to look at what happened more recently, we have to go back to what drove the big rally in the, in the six weeks ahead of last week. And so I think that's where we're going to focus the conversation here today. Where do we think spreads are going to go from here? And I think to start, we have to look at what actually drove the narrowing in credit spreads in July and early August, because as you said, it was a stronger rally than we were anticipating. And I think there are two main factors we can point to. The first one was just a significant improvement in corporate market liquidity in July. And we can look at this through the Fed's newly released corporate market distress index. I think we talked about this in a previous episode, but it's worth repeating. If you look at that index in June into early July, we saw stress in corporate markets in particular at some of their worst levels on record going back to 2005 when the data began. In fact, only 2008 and the pandemic in 2020 saw more stress in the corporate market in particular. And that measure looks at both primary and secondary market metrics to come up with the quote-unquote corporate market distress. And, and the way I view that index is I view it as a measure of liquidity. You look at what goes into that calculation. It's things like concessions, dealer inventories, looking at the price impact of secondary market bonds, when they trade, when index bonds trade, how much does the price change from where the models are marking them in the index to where actual trade levels are a measure of market impact, which is clearly a, a very important indicator of, of liquidity. So if we view the corporate market distress index as a measure of liquidity in corporate markets, liquidity just basically fell off the table in June and early July. So we've seen some improvement there, which naturally would lead to a narrowing in credit spreads, which also, whether this is causal or just indicative of it, we've also seen demand side technicals improving here in the past couple of weeks. 
Yeah, and it's not hard to remember back in June, the narrative around credit spreads, nobody really wanted to touch credit. The Fed was at peak hawkishness, going 75 basis points a meeting, and primary markets were really struggling. We saw an average of 16, 18 basis points of new issue concessions, deal after deal, and there was just really no demand for new issues. And primary dealer statistics showed low and declining inventories. Anecdotally, just the evidence really indicated that there was just no liquidity. And so to that point, you know, market sentiment was really at its worst in June. And it started to come back since then. So we had 18 consecutive weeks of bond fund outflows, which was the longest stretch on record. I think we saw about $74 billion leave high-grade bond funds during that period. And that snapped three weeks ago. And now we've actually seen three consecutive weeks of inflows. We haven't seen nearly a commensurate magnitude of inflows, but the three consecutive weeks with the last one totaling about three and a half billion dollars, I think is evidence of demand starting to return or at least stabilizing the market where the proposition of taking on new positions in credit, given the higher yields and the stability in the asset class is starting to look a little bit more attractive. So all just indications that liquidity has improved, granted from extremely poor levels to now something more resembling normal. And it's not surprising to see spreads narrowing in that environment. But also another significant contributing factor to the rally in July and early August was likely a pretty significant improvement in corporate fundamentals over that time period. And that may come as a bit of a surprise given what's likely a deterioration in the macro environment in that same time frame, but fundamentals have improved. And, and I'm not talking about Q2 earnings. Q2 earnings were definitely a mixed bag, very strong for some corporations, pretty weak for others. What's really changed in the last couple of weeks has been the expectation for future earnings. And we can see this in earnings revision indices. There are a few of them. The one that we use most commonly is just Citi's earnings revision index, which looks at equity analysts' expectations for earnings and looking at the ratio between upgrades to earning expectations and downgrades. And the most recent data we have as of August 5th showed a reading of 0.0, so equivalent upgrades and downgrades. So from an absolute perspective, earnings revision sending mostly a neutral flag. But what I want to highlight is the increase we've seen in the earnings revision index in the past four weeks. Specifically, earnings revisions have moved from negative 0.31 all the way up to zero. So that 0.31 increase we saw in a four-week span is actually one of the sharpest recoveries in earnings revisions we've seen on record. In fact, since the financial crisis, we've only seen a larger magnitude increase in the ERI two times. And both of those environments can likely be explained away as mostly outlier periods. The first one, of course, was COVID in April to May of 2020, when expectations for earnings fell off a cliff and recovered pretty sharply. Not surprising to see that with the higher magnitude. The other one, likely also an outlier, came actually in the summer of 2016, in June to July of 2016, where we saw a very short-lived but quite sharp drop in earnings revisions just after the Brexit vote, which then quickly recovered as the reality sunk in that Brexit was going to be a multi-year thing. So looking back at earnings revisions since the financial crisis, the other two environments were likely due to outlier type of situations. And we don't have an obvious externality this time that's driving a significant increase in earnings. It's just been a very, very sharp increase in optimism. And I'm not sure if I'm if I use the word optimism correctly there. Maybe it's a decrease in pessimism. How are you viewing that, Dan? Yeah, well, I think you said it on an absolute basis. Earnings expectations are roughly neutral. And that improvement you talked about really coincided with the end of the second quarter earnings releases. And so to me, it's more of a relief rally in the sense that there was a growing fear that earnings were going to suffer at some point in Q2 as they were released in 
late July, early August. And when it became clear that that wouldn't come to pass, that's when we saw that index start to climb from negative numbers towards neutral. And so what we found is that that wasn't going to be a Q2 story. So the question for credit spreads now becomes, is the recent improvement in earnings expectations warranted given the broader macro environment? And I think that's what's going to be driving spreads in the weeks ahead. I mean, surely technicals will play a role. We have the September supply wave coming up uh, in a couple of weeks once we get out of the quote-unquote dog days of summer. And it's likely that September supply is going to be very heavy if, if August showed us anything with expectations of 70 to $75 billion, getting $115 billion or so shows that there likely is some demand to issue. And you know, typically, we see 150 to $160 billion in September. I think we'll get all of that and possibly more. But it's worth noting that spread just continued narrowing up until just this past week. And also, it's worth saying that September supply is mostly expected. So $150 billion, $160 billion sounds like a ton, but obviously, investors are all expecting that. So while technicals will play a role at the margin, I think what's going to be truly driving spreads is the fundamental picture. So I'll kick it to you, Dan. What are your thoughts? Are we out of the woods now? Or was this rally on the back of more optimistic expectations for earnings maybe a bit premature? Yeah. So first, I want to touch on what you said about August supply. And I think supply has been a really complex issue as it relates to credit spreads this year. Typically in a vacuum, obviously heavy supply is going to be a headwind on credit spreads. This year, it's not been so simple. I think supply has obviously been driven, especially this year, by the primary market reception that issuers have become accustomed to expect. So as sentiment has firmed, that has brought in some supply, which isn't necessarily a headwind in and of itself. Issuers are coming to market to the degree that they think the market is going to handle its their supply. And I agree that September issuance is generally well set up for. It's the heaviest month of the year. And so investors are well conditioned to expect this supply. And it doesn't typically weigh on spreads. So I don't think that's going to be the catalyst here to wider credit spreads. I do think that fundamentals are still likely to turn. We've had a lot of reason for optimism over the past month or so. Uh, if you look at the economic data broadly, it's coming a little bit better than expected. If you look at, for instance, an economic surprise index. But over the longer term, and we're on record with this expectation, but the Fed is likely to continue to tighten financial conditions over the longer term. And this expectation is also underpinned by some of the rating actions that we've seen. So while the economic data came in, you know, pretty constructive relative to expectations in August. Rating actions have reflected an increased amount of pessimism in the corporate market over the past month. So in the corporate market as a whole, downgrades are actually outpacing upgrades for the first time of any month since January of 2021. However, it's worth noting that this has been almost entirely concentrated in the high yield space. Upgrades in, in investment grade are outpacing downgrades by a ratio of almost three to one. So it's entirely a high yield story where downgrades are outpacing upgrades by a ratio of two to one. But typically downgrades begin in the high yield space and then trickle into investment grades. So it could be something of a canary in the coal mine that we're starting to see some negative rating actions among high yield corporations. It's going to eventually begin to affect high grade credit. That's interesting just looking at the economy as a whole. I mean, incoming economic data continues to indicate slowness ahead, potentially recession, however you want to define it. The index of 15 survey-based economic indicators that we've been watching very closely this year continues to come in at, at nearly the lowest levels since 2010, excluding the pandemic. And we're off to a very poor start in August with some of the forward-looking indicators, housing market data, all showing 
you know, by design, a slowing economy. And, and, and just whether or not you believe the Fed's going to be able to drive a soft landing, we remain skeptical of that. And so, the, you know, you, you did a good job setting the table for the potential for deterioration in corporate fundamentals. I think the economy is pointing that way. And the last piece of it is just, you know, talking about the Fed, which you touched on. I think it's worth talking a bit more about with Jackson Hole coming up uh, at the end of this week, because the backbone of our medium to long-term, more bearish view on credit has been that the Fed is going to remain less accommodative than market participants have grown accustomed to through a slowdown in economic growth going forward. And now it's worth mentioning that the minutes from the July meeting, which we got last week, maybe cast some doubt on that. For the first time, we saw the Fed talking about concerns of over-tightening, which could potentially indicate that the Fed will move toward accommodation more quickly than people are expecting. And certainly we'll be looking for more clarity on that in the next couple of days at Jackson Hole. I guess I'll just ask you, Dan, how did you read the minutes? Did it start to change your expectation for the Fed in the medium to long term here? Yeah, I think we were both surprised by the minutes and how dovish they skewed. And it's worth noting that those minutes corresponded to the meeting where many market participants interpreted the Fed as making a dovish pivot. So it'll be interesting to see if Powell does double down on that dovish rhetoric, specifically talking about the risks to over-tightening. And that's going to be what I'm looking for at Friday's speech. But I don't think that the Fed is ready to pivot yet. I think we're going to see talk about the pace of rate increases slowing, which is, as we've talked about in the past, is really a given at this point. They're not going to keep going 75 indefinitely. They might go 75 in September, but then it's almost assured that they're going to start to slow the pace of rate increases. So we've moved from a super hawkish Fed where they're going 75 basis points meeting, or at least we're set to move away from that Fed. But I do think that we're going to continue to see Powell embrace a higher Fed funds rate for a longer period of time. And we are seeing that that generally reflected in the futures market. We're seeing expectations of early 2023 rate cuts really come off, and the market's expecting an elevated Fed funds rate to persist well into 2023. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's the message that Powell really reiterates on Friday. Yeah, historically, Jackson Hole hasn't been the source of much volatility in financial markets. I went back and looked at the spread market reaction to the Jackson Hole meetings, both the week of and the week following Jackson Hole since the financial crisis. And since 2013, spreads have moved on an average of less than one basis point in the eight sessions following Jackson Hole. This doesn't come as a big surprise. Typically, Jackson Hole is more academic in nature, more longer term in nature. It's not generally a place where the Fed communicates near-term monetary policy, but that could also be a function of just where we are in the economic cycle, because there are instances where Jackson Hole has served that way. If you look back in 2011 and 2012 to, at the time, Chairman Bernanke's speeches, the market was extremely focused on whether or not Bernanke would set the table for more accommodation, whether that was via more QE or an operation twist. And in 2011 and 2012, we did see outsized reactions to Jackson Hole with spreads moving six to nine basis points from an absolute value perspective in the week following Jackson Hole. So historically, it hasn't been a volatile environment, but we have seen examples where it has been. And I think it could be this time around with the near-term direction of monetary policy so uncertain. So any clues the Fed gives us here is going to move the markets. Now, heading into Jackson Hole, I will note that market participants are clearly expecting a, a hawkish outcome. And, and that makes sense just given, like I said, the long-term nature for the Jackson Hole meetings. We're going to be likely hearing about a central bank fighting inflation for the first time in decades and what that has meant for monetary policy. But we can also see expectations for hawkishness coming through through SOFR positioning, which showed hedge funds now maintaining their largest net short in three-month SOFR futures 
in the four-year history of the data series. And while not as extreme, there is also a, a similar short built-up in euro-dollar futures to the extent that LIBOR is still an actively traded reference rate there. And then asset managers have also moved from 750,000 contracts long to just over 300,000 contracts long. And that's something that we talked about in the past is uh, something that had led to some narrowing pressure on swap spreads, partially reversing. So clearly then this sets up for a narrowing in credit spreads if the Fed actually does deliver on dovishness. But we are aligned with the consensus here. They were expecting the Fed to be more hawkish and while that may not mean near-term volatility in credit spreads or a sharp move wider since it's what the market's expecting, it does move us towards the medium-term outlook, which is to continue to expect spreads to drift wider here. Within the range, likely we're not going to see an outsized push to 200 or above that, likely. But we are still of the belief that spreads are going to remain elevated for a longer period of time, even though the peak is lower the duration of, of spreads at quote-unquote elevated levels will likely be longer than what we've gotten used to seeing, just given the changed Fed reaction function to slowing economic data this time around. Now, Dan, before wrapping up, I do want to shift the conversation to swap spreads very quickly because we have seen some volatility in swap spreads. Specifically, we've seen some widening across the swap spread curve in recent weeks. And certainly a part of that has been the change in positioning and so for futures for end users. We've talked about that in our written work and in recent podcast episodes that with the transition to SOFR, now the drivers of swap spreads are more technical in nature. So things like positioning have much more power to change swap spreads than they did maybe before when we were using a credit-sensitive rate such as LIBOR. So you know, the, the, the move net short from hedge funds and the move shorter from asset managers, that influences swap spreads wider. But we've also seen some chatter recently about a a potential change to SLR calculations, which would be a widener as well, which was specifically on display potentially in yesterday's market. Yeah, so just as a bit of background, the SLR exemption was put in place around the onset of COVID, and the Fed allowed the GSIB banks to exclude reserves and treasuries from their SLR calculation, which just enabled them to hold more reserves and hold more treasuries, which at the time made sense as the Fed was pumping more liquidity into the banking system. Now, this was a very popular topic in the beginning of 2021 when that exemption was set to expire. And there was a lot of uncertainty over whether the Fed would ultimately allow it to expire. And somewhat surprisingly, they did. And at the end of the first quarter of last year, that exemption expired. And so treasuries and reserves were again included in the SLR exemption, which theoretically and probably in practice made it more expensive for the large banks to hold these massive portfolios of treasuries. Now, treasury intermediation has become a very, very important issue for this Fed. And Powell has mentioned his desire to potentially introduce a longer term permanent tweak to the SLR. Although that was largely put on hold while the Fed was waiting to appoint a new vice chair of supervision. Recently, Michael Barr took that post. And so now this is really an issue back on the table. It's important to note that we haven't gotten any official messaging or guidance on this topic, but market shatter seems to have really picked up around it. Yeah, we're ultimately expecting the Fed to deliver an SLR exemption. It seems to be something that the Fed will need in order to ensure functioning of monetary policy in an ample reserve regime, which it seems like we're going to be in, uh, I won't say forever, but at least for the foreseeable future. So we're expecting that at some point. The question is, what will it actually mean for swap spreads? Because if you look at what the banks have actually done, we wrote a piece back in 2021 estimating that banks could sell as much as $200 billion of treasuries after the exemption expired. That hasn't happened at all. In fact, banks have added over $200 billion in treasury positions since then. So how are we so wrong? And 
the explanation for that is we were expecting banks to want to maintain a pretty sizable SLR buffer above 5% minimums. So our analysis that estimated as much as $200 billion worth of selling of treasuries was based on banks moving their SLRs back to the 6 to 6.5% range where they've been even prior to the pandemic. What we've seen in actuality is banks have just operated a much, much lower SLR. Aggregate SLRs for most of the GSIBs now are between 5.3 and 5.6%, much lower than they were prior to the pandemic and lower than they thought banks would be comfortable operating at. We can interpret this two different ways. Potentially, banks are just, there's been a change in behavior and banks are just more comfortable at lower SLRs at this point, or maybe banks are expecting an SLR tweak. And that's sort of what I think is the case. Banks know that they're going to have an SLR exemption at some point. But whether or not that's true, low SLRs ahead of an exemption means that the behavior for banks won't change. We're not likely to see a a massive increase in bank treasury holdings as a result of SLRs. In fact, the mix between reserves and and treasuries on on GSIB balance sheets is now more heavily tipped towards treasuries than it was even during 2019 when reserves became scarce. Now, that's clearly not a concern now, given the abundant reserves in the system, but just goes to show the point that banks already own a very high amount of treasuries, and that's unlikely to change, except for maybe via QT. But if that's the case, if banks are taking down a ton of treasuries as a result of QT, that's not going to be a, a widening swap spread environment. So, a long-winded way of saying that, yes, with chatter and potentially delivery of SLR, we should see some pop in swap spreads just due to superior treasury market functioning. And, and, and maybe that's why you saw long-end spreads perform yesterday. That's where treasury market liquidity is potentially not as strong as compared to the short end of the curve. But long-term, we wouldn't expect SLR to have a major widening influence on swap spreads, which leads to a recommendation we're looking to take profits or set shorts in swap spreads here, particularly with QT now really starting to get underway. And one final note on a potential SLR exemption as it relates to credit spreads, we think that would likely be a positive for credit spreads for a couple of reasons. First, financial specifically uh, are likely to have balance sheet space freed up in order to invest in higher yielding assets. It's probably fundamentally a credit positive event for financial specifically. And also, if you allow banks to take on more treasuries, it has a sort of minor impact of the portfolio balance channel, much like quantitative easing had, in that if banks are more prone to take on treasuries, it could force the marginal investor out the credit curve, putting downward pressure on credit spreads generally. Yeah, at the margin, that's a good point, Dan. I would just say QT will certainly work the opposite way and will probably be of a larger magnitude than the SLR. But it's a good point worth keeping in mind, particularly if the Fed isn't able to get its balance sheet as low as perhaps it wants to. Well, Dan, I think we're already on the longer side of our typical episode length here, so we can wrap it up here unless you have anything else to add. No, I think that covers it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For full legal disclosure, 
visit bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.